Hello, it's part two of my interview with Boris Hussain. of course was the very first director of Doctor Who but I talked to him way back in one of the early Who's rounds about that particular programme so this is about many of the other things he's done in his career. And then I gradually was taken on by what was then a play slot for the week called Wednesday Play. Now when it came to subject matter and writers you worked with Simon Gray a lot for the Wednesday I'm so glad you mentioned this because I regard myself as you see it's all been lost in the mists of time. Simon wrote his biographies and became famous anyway. And nowhere in his writings does he mention these early years. Which I have to say I'm deeply disappointed by it. Um, I don't know why he chose not to do this. It's funny because in my life I've uh, started various people's careers. And it's interesting how when people do make something of themselves, they tend to forget the past or want to forget the past. Uh, And I felt very sensitive to the fact that Simon, when he became very well-known, especially in the theatre, became a great pal of Harold Pinter's, who took it... uh, Harold started directing his plays, you know, Simon's plays. When I met Simon, he he was nowhere. He lived in a cold-water flat just off Finchley Road. So how, what, where does the psychology of that come from, then, do you think? Because you have always, I think, you, you've just done it with Sidney Newman. You acknowledge the people that, um, if not helped you, but were certainly there as yeah. you were learning their own. So what is it that makes somebody who comes from a, a humble beginning, as we all do generally, and then makes something of the self, why would they then cut out somebody who's been an important part of that I, development? I wish I could answer that. I don't know, because I... I've never been able to answer that. No one's asked me that question anyway. But, I mean, I don't understand this. Uh, Simon, I'm not indicting Simon because he was a very, very nice person. And to work with him was a pleasure. But what he hasn't acknowledged is some of the things that helped him to become who he was as a writer. I worked on those plays with him. Uh, one of, unfortunately, the BBC's wiped all of them they're not on record I mean I did a wonderful one with him about the case of Alma Rattenbury uh, called Death of a Teddy Bear mm-hmm. which later Terence Rattigan adapted into a thing called um, oh, it was about, oh, I'm trying to remember it was shown at the Elvick recently um, anyway um, Simon was he, uh, very aware of the oddness of human beings and his scripts were very odd. He wrote the first play about homosexuality. In those days, it just wasn't talked about. And there was another one with um, Marius Goring and Johnny Secker about oh, that was uh, uh, that was uh, that was racism. Dog. That yeah. was racism. But um, the one that I'm talking about was spoiled. It was called Spoiled, and. Uh, Soon after that, Hugo Chartres wrote one, actually, called um, The Connoisseur, set at a public school. And that was actually shown at the Gay and Lesbian Festival uh, about five years ago. It's because it still, it still survived miraculously. 
but I'm so sad that the Simon Gray plays I did have all gone. But it's interesting that Spoiled is about homosexuality, mm-hmm. um, Sleeping Dogs is about racism, racism. that's um, about a, a man who treats a, who captures a black barman and keeps him in his cellar yeah. and treats him like an animal. So it's that outsider thing again. Yes. Um, now, so how, I mean, it can't be coincident, surely, that you, were you given this material by a producer? Did you court this sort of material, or did you and Simon um, bat ideas? Um, you know what? I was never fighting for any of those scripts. I think I'd achieved a certain level of experience, and individual producers, I think in this case it was um, Graham MacDonald, I think, producing he actually got me the, the, the projects. Uh, I, I was very glad to get them, to be honest, uh, because they did something to me and for me. Uh, I've always been someone who's focused on outsiders. And, uh, well, any director will tell you that, that this is what attracts them, but the fact is this is the case in my situation. So, yes... The racism thing was fairly daring at that time. To take a black man and put him into a cellar with a dog collar around his neck and reduce him to being a status of an animal, it's chilling. And so what, in terms of um, filling your plays and your subject matter with actors, it's interesting that nowadays everything is done via a casting director, whereas you as a director, in fact a lot of the people that you've mentioned already, Ian McKellen you cast in Hedda Gabler, Rosemary Harris, who you'd watched as a youth you cast in a series, so did you, was this your chance as a director then, did you go and say, well I want to work, these are the people I've admired or yes. like and I want to work well, absolutely. with absolutely, and Ian was of course my contemporary at Cambridge, and, I might add, I gave him his first film role. I did a film called A Touch of Love, written by Margaret Drabble, from her novel called The Millstone, about uh, an unmarried mother in London, uh, way before Cathy came home, I might add. Um, no, maybe about the same time, except she was Ken Loach's, and mine was a more upper-middle class. Sandy Dennis from America mm-hmm. came to play the lead. From Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, and she'd just done Virginia Woolf, and she was a star. Yeah, and Ian McKellen McKenna played her then lover who made her pregnant. Well, it was his first film. How many times has that remembered? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this is why we're doing this. We're getting yeah. it all down. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you cast, just as a side issue, as we're talking about casting, and because some of the Doctor Who fans might be going, well, hang on, Ian, oh no, Ian McKellen has now done a Doctor Who, but you cast um, Patrick Troughton a couple has of times. Has Ian time. McKellen done it? He did the voice of the, of the bad guy, of the bad alien intelligence in the Christmas episode, Just Gone. Oh. See, because when somebody does a voice, they just have to go and do a bit of ADR. And of course. And get them for an right, afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Michael Sheen's done that, Ian McKellen's done that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so he's sort of tangential, but Patrick Troughton had uh, hefty parts. You cast him in a play for today, and of course, in Edward and Mrs. Simpson, he played Clement Attlee. Attlee absolutely. Um, Brilliantly, it, I might add. He shaved his head for it. Um, I mean, that's pretty going a long way towards being a professional. I mean, we know what Clement Attlee looked like. He's so famous. I mean, you know, you can't ignore what he looked like. And I'm very happy to say that a lot of the actors who I cast in Edward and Mrs. Simpson resemble their real counterparts. 
And, and Patrick Troughton looked like one of them, exactly like uh, Claude Adley. He shaved the top of his head, and he grew this, had this moustache. Um, and how did he and William Hartnell differ as actors? Because obviously he took over from well, Hartnell. Well, uh, in a funny way, he, he had his own quirkiness. Uh, there's no, you can't ever emulate the person who's taken it away. It wasn't meant to be as if he was supposed to be an echo of, uh, uh, of William Hartnell, but he had to take certain elements and then make them his own. And that happened through... I thought it happened with Patrick Troughton. It happened with... Um, Pertwee, Baker. John Pertwee and Tom Baker. They were the ones who imposed their own quirkiness onto it. Tom Baker, I think, was very successful at making it his own. Uh, the interesting thing about all these were that they were unavailable on a human level. They were always a bit strange. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, the companions were a part of their backup team, but there was nothing sexual about it. Now there has become one. And We've often discussed this sea change. Is it to the advantage of the series that there's a sexual undercurrent to the companion? It started basically with David Tennant and Billy Piper and extended itself through to um, uh, Matt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the first time, what's her name, came on? Amy Pond, Karen Amy, Gillen, yeah. Amy Pond came on. She was dressed in a kinky sort of police woman's outfit with shorts and mini dresses. And I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? And the new girl has just taken over, snobbed him in the first episode. And I thought, what, what are they doing with this? The whole charm of, I think, this is my opinion... Doctor Who is the unavailability of the character ultimately. That ultimate mystery is you can never quite own him. And interesting enough, it's filtered into guess what? Into one, I think, of iconic new series Sherlock. Mm-hmm. Benedict Cumberbatch plays him as an unavailable character. And Martin Freeman plays his acolyte never able to get through except to a certain point. But who, and, who is his conduit to humanity. Yes. Yeah. He's the male version. Yeah. And then you've got the women in these series. Uh, there was that wonderful one. Wonderful. This sexy woman even takes all her clothes off. Doesn't reach him. Yeah. That's what his charm is and that's why everyone adores this character. I fear that I wish that that was a little bit more in Doctor Who because that's what he was originally, unavailable. He's not attached to anybody. So you can hope that he'll attach himself to you. And he might, but only in in his own terms. And that's what makes him interesting. Um, so, interested talking about the, the um, well, everything from sex to race to... Um, sexuality and all of these things are the subjects of television. Is there anything that in your, you know, when you were um, picking and choosing your work in a way, or is there any subject matter that you were ever approached with that you went, you know what, I, no, I'm not going to do this, there's no place well, for I, this on television? I, to be film. honest, I'm not sure um, in my career I'm good at uh, the things that I know I can't do. Uh, I'm not, a, I, 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 I've never really proved myself in the action 
you know, I've never really, I wouldn't see myself as an action director. I mean, I can do fights. We did them in Doctor Who, you know. The cavemen had a fight. And, mm. and Darren Nesbitt and uh, uh, Mark Eaton had a sword fight in, in, um, in Marco, Marco Polo. Polo yeah. But no, I'm talking about action, action. I'm much more of a director who goes for the human uh, element in there, you know, uh, how to... How do people get themselves into certain situations? Uh, there is a subject that I dabbled in. I did a film, actually, which I won't ever try again, because I'm a superstitious person. I did a film called The Possession of Joel Delaney, which is about uh, spiritismo in the Puerto Rican community, amongst the Latin American community, where they believe in the transference of souls from one into another. It's almost like a contagion if you attract it. And it can have dire consequences. Um, and I did that film, and I had some fairly rocky and diff uh, rather frightening experience on it, to be honest. Uh, so I won't do anything to do with the supernatural now. Sci-fi is different, but I'm talking about evil. I, I wouldn't do The Exorcist. <laughs> and you, what? So you do you think what you channeled something, or, or I think we. I mean, maybe it's my ethnic background. We do believe in certain things that we cannot explain. By that, I don't mean we walk around worrying about doors creaking open. I'm talking about evil as a presence, um, and I just don't want to deal with it. And a is evil in the world. But it's one thing to be cruel and uh, physically abusive or do terrible things. But when you can't explain something that happens, that's truly frightening. Uh, perhaps it's to do with mental states where people are losing their minds and seeing things that they shouldn't see. Uh, other people believe in ghosts. I don't believe in tempting the fates, and I did on that one, and I was sorely tried by it. Well, a less worrisome, I'm sure, um, and certainly most successful uh, experience was Edward and Mrs. Simpson. Ah, historic. I'm very proud of it, because we spent a lot of time preparing it. The kind of luxury you don't have today. Uh, literally researching how these people behaved, how they looked, of course, we know, because they're on film, and trying to make them look as near possible to what they were. Uh, I thought Edward Fox was amazing, ultimately. I had to persuade him to part his hair on the other side of his head, and he was very reluctant. And I said, Edward, you cannot not do this, because we've got photographs. Everybody knows what he looks like. And we were lucky to have Cynthia Harris, who, when made up in her black wig and everything, looked just like Wallace much more so than I think anybody else did, who have since played her, you know? And interesting, because you went to the States to get her. No, around. I didn't. What happened, there was an... Uh, it's a very interesting story. There was a woman who was actually cast, and she, everything was set for her to do it. She was quite a well-known actress. I'm trying to remember her name. Anyway, she suddenly backed out because she was offered a TV series in America. And, of course, they couldn't compete. We couldn't compete because the finances there are huge if you 
get chosen in a pilot for a TV series, uh, and it goes, and you make fortunes. Uh, that was not the guarantee on something like this. So she backed off. And um, Cynthia was found at the last minute. I had nothing to do with it. Uh, Verity, I think, flew to New York because there was panic stations now. We had more or less the whole cast except Wallace Simpson. And uh, when she, Cynthia's red-haired and she... Tra it's funny because when we put her into that black wig, she just transformed into Wallace. Um, but interestingly enough, I, I, I didn't... I was very happy to be offered the job. Now, in a funny way, Verity was head of drama by that time at Thames. And our relationship had started with Doctor Who. And she was... Before Doctor Who, uh, I had... Uh, sorry, after Doctor Who. And after the BBC, I did this first film I told you about, Sandy Dennis. Um, I got involved in feature films for a little while before going back to television. I did a film called Melody, which was the very first film produced by David Putnam and written by Alan Parker who had actually written it for himself. And in those days, because I was so highly thought of as a film director or TV director, I was given the job of directing that particular show. I don't think Alan was too happy about that, but anyway, he'd written the script. Uh, it was about two children, uh, one from um, a middle-class family and another working-class girl from, uh, you know, girl called Melody, and uh, they fall in love at the age of 12 which is way ahead of its time in terms of story, mm -hmm. um, with music by the Bee Gees. The entire story was based around the songs, where, again, we were way ahead of Mamma Mia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 the songs balanced the story. Um, so that was David Putnam. And on the strength of that, I was offered... Um, uh, a film in America with Gene Wilder. Yeah, now this is, it's got a funny title. Facts of Fortune. Yeah. It has a cousin in the Bronx. <laughs> and, and that's where I discovered a young girl who later became famous, Margot Kidder. Mm-hmm. Lois Lane. Totally unknown at the time. Uh, I then also did a feature film version of Henry VIII and Six Wives on the tales of the very successful TV series. Had you kept a relationship with Verity between, betwixt Doctor Who and yes, Edward and Mrs. Simpson? Yes, I'd like to say, prior to, 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 to Edward and Mrs. Simpson, uh, I'd had a disastrous experience with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, it was course, Divorce Him and Divorce, divorce Her. Divorce His and Hers. That's an appropriate title, considering two, that. <laughs> exactly. Two separate episodes, uh, two separate two-hour shows, uh, which was a disaster from the beginning. Uh, they were about to fall apart anyway, and they took it out on me. And uh, we were shooting under very strange circumstances. Elizabeth had never shot for a television in her life and wasn't used to the place we worked at. And we were also working with multiple cameras, which she absolutely refused to do. So all that planning was out the window. We had to then shoot single camera. <coughs> anyway, uh, the show, uh, I don't really want to go into it too much because historically it was a downer for me. And my, it, it, it was... For, it was sold to ABC television in America who hated it mm. and when they saw it that's when they saw it, that's when they hated it um, of course when the bomb goes off, who suffers under the blast? It's not the cast it's the director and I was basically unemployable 
uh, in America. And uh, I actually gone to f- find solace, and, and I, I hid with the f- uh, some friends of mine who had invited me to stay with them, and I was in, in America, in L.A. And um, I didn't know where I was going or what was happening to me. I got a phone call from Verity Lambert. Who, I said, how did you find me? She said, I know, I, I have ways and means, she said. Uh, I want you to come back. What are you doing? I said, I'm hiding. She said, well, you can't be hiding because I've got a project for you. I want you to come over back to England and direct a series about the suffragettes. Ah, yes. And uh, it's called uh, Shoulder to Shoulder. Yeah. Well, that was another story because it was an all-women's thing. It had been devised by Verity, uh, Georgia Brown, uh, and a woman called Midge McKenzie. Very feminist in its outlook. But Verity, in her wisdom, fought Midge, who kept saying, why are we bringing a man into this? We want this all to be an all-woman thing. For God's sake, we've been fighting all our lives, and now we've got this opportunity of bringing a man in. And Verity said, Midge, we are not creating a a ghetto. We are creating something about women that does not exclude men. And Warris is very good with women. And I want him to direct it. So she was waving the flag for me. I came in, knowing that I had one producer, like a sort of dark element, Hmm. (laughs) sitting in judgment. And uh, I directed the first episode of that. And Emmeline Pankhurst was played by Sean Phillips. Um, And we became very good friends, and we still are. So I have forged certain friendships along the way. Uh, I've forgotten to tell you that before any of this, I should have mentioned in my post um, uh, compact and Doctor Who days, I did some major dramas. We talked about Hedda Gabler, but what about St. Joan, which I did with Janet Janet Susman in both? Yes. Yeah. And A Passage to India. Yes, of course. Before David uh, Lean's epic. Yeah. I had the most fabulous cast. I had Sybil Thorndike, Virginia McKenna, Cyril Cusack. I mean... Well, Cyril Cusack, of course, was somebody who was considered for the role of the first doctor, so you finally got to work with him. He turned it down. Yes. What (laughs) what qualities would he have brought to the doctor? Would it have been a very different show? Totally different, yes. He was a lovely man. I enjoyed him so much, and he was brilliant as fielding. Anyway, the point I brought all this in is that when I'm working, when having worked with people like Gielgud, which is what I did, he appeared as the Inquisitor in St. Joan, uh, having worked with that calibre, Sybil Thorndike, for heaven's sakes, um, when I had to put up with the shenanigans of the Burtons, <laughs> I derived great comfort from the fact that I'd worked with the greats. Mm. And nothing they could do to me would destroy me. And Verity was the one who saw to it that I was resurrected. And I did the suffragettes. And during that time, Andrew Brown, who'd been producing at um, Edward and Mrs. Simpson, um, said to me, he was doing a series about Jenny Churchill uh, with Lee Remick. And he wanted me to leave the suffragette show in order to come on board with Jenny. Um, And Verity took me aside and said, look, I can't stop you. 
if you want to go and do that. But I would really like you to stay with us. And I did stay with her, and I missed out on Jenny, which became very it was successful. It wasn't it? Yeah. Jimmy Catlin Jones, who directed it, yeah. got feature film off of it. Yeah. And, but you know what? That was then, and that was how I decided. I had a certain loyalty to Verity, because she'd been loyal to me. And that's what happened. Loyalty aside, I'm going to ask you to look at yourself a little bit now, mm. as a, as a, as a, 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 as a technician, as an artist. Um, what was it about you that made Verity think you were right for Edward and Mrs. Simpson? It wasn't her who thought it through. Oh, exactly. Actually, let's talk about that. Andrew Brown was a New Zealander, and I was an Indian. We were both colonials. Uh -huh. And he said to me, you know what, Warris, we have an objective look at this rather than somebody born on native soil. We have a way of looking at it because the whole series was about the greatest love story in the world, question mark, or a nation betrayed, question mark. So we were actually scuppering the legend. And to do that, we had a point of view. It was a very critical look at the whole abdication saga and Edward VIII's weakness, proving that he would never have been a good king. Did you have any qualms because Wallace Simpson was still alive at that point? Well, they said, you know, uh, 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 attorney that I'm Mate Bloom went on about uh, threatening us. This was a formidable lawyer, a female lawyer in Paris, who threatened to sue us if we got anything wrong. One of her main points was that there was no carnal exchange between the two of them until they married, which is ridiculous, <coughs> considering we all know when they went off on the cruise on the Narlin and God knows where else together, skiing in Zermatt and Switzerland and all this. Don't tell me they didn't sleep together, but we couldn't say that in our series. And I evolved an ingenious way of implying that they had, without showing them. <laughs> One sequence is uh, they start, they're dancing on the deck of the boat. And I started off on a pair of shoes, because if symbolically a woman took her shoes off in those days, it was already a symbol of giving way. <laughs> So we started off on the shoes, and then we panned across the boat deck and saw them dancing together. And uh, as they, uh, you know, the figures, uh, and the camera then pans down to two silhouettes merging. Ah. <laughs> so once you flashed your ankle, that's you yeah, may as well go all the way. Give up, yeah, give up. <laughs> and then another one where they Lake Como. She's at breakfast in a dressing gown, and he's in his dressing gown, having breakfast. Well, don't tell me that, you know, and he comes and whispers in her ear and she laughs rather sort of sexily. So, implication. You couldn't be sued on that. But poor Verity had to vet every day of the script from May to Bloom. And the Duchess, from what we gather by that time, was almost on her deathbed. She hardly knew what was going on in her, around her. Now, 
when you went to, to America, I mean that that's and, and worked in, and you working on film yeah. and it almost seems like a, a completely different and alien environment from where you cut your teeth in a BBC studio yeah. with multi cameras. So, uh, uh, I mean, how did you metamorphose, therefore, as a director to 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 do what is an essentially an entirely different exactly. medium. Well, interesting you ask, because what happened was, um, the reason I was offered a job in America, I didn't go looking for it, was that I'd done a very successful series here called The Glittering Prizes. With Tom Conti. Yes, I'd, again, discovered by me, not theatrically, but in the world of television. There's a story to be told about that. Same way as Carol Ann Ford was discovered by me looking on a monitor while she was lining up at a shot down in the studio. Um, I was, my, one of my close friends is Francesca Annis, and I'd known her since she was the age of 15, and I directed her in a thing called Girls in Uniform. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Francesca was doing Madame Bovary for the BBC, and we were having lunch one day, and we were trying to cast the lead, who was meant to be an upper-middle-class Jewish boy, public school. Believe it or not, in those days you didn't have upper-middle-class Jewish actors. If you were from that sort of background, you went into law, you went became a doctor, you became this and that, you didn't want to spoil your lives, especially with your parents behind you, trying to be an actor. There were a lot of working, you know, working-class Jewish actors. <coughs> but they weren't of the, cal- you know, they weren't of the social background we were looking for. Sure. I was mentioning this to... Francesca at lunch saying, you know, we're trying to find this character and we just don't know what to do. And she said, well, I'm doing Madame Bovary. She said, have you thought of Tom Conti? I said, well, I'm not really familiar with him. And she said, well, come and have a look. We're in the studio. And I went and saw them lining up Madame Bovary and there was Tom Conti playing Monsieur Bovary, her husband. And I called up to Mark Shivers in his office. We in those days had offices on, on, on the sixth floor. And I said, come down and look at the monitor here. I think we may have a, talk, a, a possible um, lead for, for the uh, glittering prizes. And that's exactly what happened. Mark Shivers came down and looked at the monitor and said, you know what, With nothing to lose, let's send it to him. About a week later... Mark, uh, we were sitting in the office. Uh, we suddenly got a phone call from Tom Conti. Hmm. If you don't give me this part, I'll commit harakiri at the gates of the BBC. <laughs> and that's how he got the part. And the rest is history. The rest is history. So he's another one feather in my cap. <laughs> and that and that feather blew you across to the. Well, that blew me across <laughs> to America because they'd seen it, and it was very successful in America on PBS rather like Downton Abbey is now. And um, I have to give the producers enormous marks. So, you know, they didn't know who the hell I was. Just on the strength of this show, they sent me a script. And the next thing is, I was on my way to work on my first American television film, which, by the way, they shot in 18 to 20 days our film and um, I went to the, the, the location was in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania it was about based on a true it was called Death Penalty it's about a true story about a, 
a young boy, uh, a Puerto Rican, who had killed three Irish kids in a playground in a, in a fight, and uh, huge racial implications to this, in that the Irish families were so angry and distraught at the dead loss of their children, they insisted that this kid be given the highest form of prosecution. And um, it's a true story. He was actually tried as an adult and condemned to death. And a woman realized this was absolutely against the Constitution. And she fought for this boy to stop being killed, uh, put to death. Appealed to the high and, and saved him. Um, and the actress playing it was a woman called uh, Colleen Dewhurst. She was married to George E. Scott. And she was one of the best actresses ever in America on stage. And I came back to, because I'd already been contracted by Granada, to do a, a film called Staying On about, by Paul Scott. And it was about two a British couple left in, in India after partition, independence. Um, I was all set to do it, having done my pi uh, film in, uh, in the States. And Colleen Dewhurst had been the lead. When I got back to England, I got an, a reception that was even more frosty than the one I had at the BBC. It was like, literally like going on board a ship. They, they welcomed me aboard. And I was suddenly told, this is your crew. And I said, wait a minute, I'm shooting in India. I can't just have a crew allocated. I mean, well, there's a union situation. You're going to have to get what give, have whoever we're giving you. And I said, no, no, we can't do that. Um, I need people I choose. They, oh, we can't do that. And we had a struggle. And because I'd had my American experience, which had gone very well, um, I stood my ground. And they decided that if I stood my ground and didn't give in, they would cancel the show. Which is what they did. Ah. And uh, this was being treated as the pilot for the subsequent series called The Jewel and the Crown. So I was out of the job. And the actress who was going to play the lead was Wendy Hiller, and she had got Trevor Howard to do it with her. Um, I had to call her up. She was having a shots for India, and say, Wendy, we're not doing it anymore. She was devastated. And the irony of this story is that I... Well, I'll tell you what happened. I went home, and I thought, I, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Phone call. Colin Dewhurst from America. Morris, I know you're probably going to do something in England, but something tells me that I would just take a chance and find out if you were available. I said, why? She said, because I've been asked to do a pilot for a series in California. I live in Connecticut, she said. But I have director approval. And I know they don't know who you are, but I'm requesting you. And I said, wow, Colleen, I'm just out of a job. She said, I'll have the script FedEx to you, but you need to let us know in the next two days. The script arrived, I read it, and within three days I was flying to LA. 
and the irony of what happened on staying on they resurrected it with another director freelance crew no union situation and instead of Wendy Hiller who'd originated the part they got Celia Johnson and they promoted it as the revival of the couple from Brief Encounter so Trevor Howard did it and Celia did it it was watched by many people but what it had done for me was that when they were looking for the director for uh, Jewel in the Crown they didn't want me Granada vetoed me got Chris Moran and I have to say he did a very good job brilliant job but then they needed a second director and then they approached me would I be the second on it and I said no too much pride involved mm. in today's market I would probably jump at it but in those days I was able to say no and as a result I got uh, I did uh, a thing called Lawrence Olivier Presents and I ended up at Granada and they did a whole series up in Granada with Larry Olivier and I did uh, Daphne Loriolo with him and Joan Florite. that was my <laughs> so I then had an opportunity to work with Olivier so you know it's swings and roundabouts isn't it and how was working with Olivier wonderful he was an extraordinary man uh, the thing about Larry was that he he could be very jokey almost to the point where you couldn't quite believe this is this famous knight of you know there's something about him that was absolutely wonderful um, and then I got to know Joan Joan Plurite who I became very close friends with You worked with him, and of course, we mentioned that you worked with Gielgud as the Inquisitor in St. Joan. Um, two sides of a, the same coin? What do you mean? Uh, as actors, Olivier and, and ah, Gielgud. Well, today's market is McKellen and, and Jacobi, isn't it? Yeah. It's the same, similar situation. I love both of them. John was a lo- I directed him subsequently at the National Theatre, by the way, a play called Half Life. And now I laugh because I've heard uh, uh, there's a thing called Tara Arts. Mm. Uh, an Indian group who claimed to be the first ones to work at the Indians to work at the National No Dears, I feel like. <laughs> 1978, Half Life, directed by me with Gilgan in it at the Cottesloe. So you predated them by uh, quite a bit. I have actually, I have to say this, and I'm not saying it with any paranoia, but I preceded a number of people <laughs> on a number of fronts. Uh, who, yeah. I mean, actually, in all fairness, Edward and Mrs. Simpson wasn't very far off from the King's Speech. No, sure. It's actually, <laughs> if you think about it... Yeah, yeah. Uh, the King's Speech, a lot of people said, but it was a bit like the ma- a very expensive version of the ma- a Masterpiece Theatre. Uh, but it's, it's funny enough, uh, we were, I went to see it at the cinema mm. and thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes. And I said, what did you think of that? I, sort of, I thought it was a brilliant film. It was brilliantly acted. Um, but it's the sort of thing that I would have seen on BBC One at half past nine, fifteen years ago. This is it. But they don't do. They don't do it. They don't do it anymore. Uh, it, but good for Tom Hooper. He's now on top of the hill. Yeah. 
I mean, for me, it's where did you know? I'm not. You know what I'm saying? So I do feel these things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could have told that story set in two different rooms yeah. with good acting. Absolutely. On BBC television. Now we lost you, to Doctor Who fans. We lost you. You yeah. were the one that got you know the Doctor Who director that went and went and we never thought I have to say the idea of seeing an interview with you or um... I moved on I, I, to be honest with you and a lot of D- Doctor Who devotees talk in great detail of certain characters I don't know what the hell they're talking about I didn't see half of those I saw Tom Baker and that was it but beyond, and even he was sporadic in my experience because I was away so much um, so that's why I find it so strange that I'm coming back into it um, I think it's almost sort of inevitable in a funny way. I mean, look, I'm lucky to still be around. People say to me, my God, how old were you when you directed Doctor Who? Because they think I uh, look younger than I am. And I said, well, I must have been 12, mustn't I? The <laughs> fact is, I'm lucky to keep... I'm lucky to have my health. My creative juice is still going. And I, I, I still want to work. There's, there's, I don't see any reason why I shouldn't. And as, as so... Because, obviously, it's Doctor Who that you are talked to about a lot, and, and some of the other stuff that we've touched on today, but is there, is there anything that you've done that you go, I wish people had asked me about that? I did a film very recently for the BBC, when I say recently, it's not yesterday, but um, I did a film about disability called Sixth Happiness, which is about a Parsi boy in Bombay in the 70s who... Not only is it a minority by being Parsi, but the Zoroastrians, they were British, very, very British in their allegiances until the Brits left. And their entire community began to fade. They were very anglicised, and they were from Persia originally. Anyway, minority, being a Zoroastrian Parsi. Uh, osteoporosis was his illness, he, uh-huh. he, brit- brittle bone. Uh, he would never be able to walk. He would be tiny in his wheelchairs, and that's a, that's another dis, that's another disadvantage. And thirdly, he was gay. And I did this film about a family protecting him and himself growing. And the BBC and BFI put money together, and uh, I couldn't cast it because of the fact of the uh, you know it's one thing to have Daniel Day Lewis do my left foot. But this is something that you couldn't simulate unless you do it now with CGI. They did it with Marion Cotillard in uh, Rust and Bone. Mm -hmm. But here is this real thing, stick-like legs and never growing. And um, it was written as a book and then adapted by the writer, who is himself disabled. And when it got to the point where I had to make a decision, I said, I'm afraid I can't cast this unless you play the role. And I cast the writer. He'd never acted in his life. And he goes from the age of 8 to 18. Now, because he's so small, and my entire inspiration from, was from a film called The Tin Drum, oh, yes. where the boy never grows, and yet he becomes an adult. There's a very strange scene where he's actually having sex with a woman, this six-year-old kid. It's quite worrying, but it's, it's the, the adult. The adult's having sex. So... I thought if they can make that film, which is a classic in its own mm-hmm. way, I can do this. And so we cast Fidos playing a part that he'd written, not for himself, but a, a character, with certain undertones, undercurrents to his own life, fictional. Um, 
and we went home and filmed it. It's never been seen because the BBC, in its wisdom, put it out at 11 o'clock on Oscar night on BBC Two. Right. And we've just had the Olympic Paralympics. You would have thought again, they, in their wisdom, they might have dug it out and shown it again. Because, ironically, the two films that are now nominated as potential films for Oscars is Rust and Burn for Marianne Cotillard and um, another one called uh, Untouchable, which is about a paralyzed man and, uh, and his manservant. French film, both French. Disability is very much in everyone's consciousness. Mine was way ahead of its time. And to this day I regret the fact. I showed it in India this year, last year. I came back. You know, in, I'm not known in India, by the way. I'm, I'm known as a British director. So I showed six of my films, and one of them was Sixth Happiness. I was very worried because there's a lot of supersti- uh, there's a lot of prejudice against homosexuality in the country and everything else. And the Parsi community, I thought, might be upset. They loved it. They want me to go back and um, have a retrospective of my work. Oh, fabulous. With this as the guiding film. And that's a film that, that therefore, in answer to your question, this is the film I wish had been seen by more people. Well, I'd like to thank Morris for that. And I'd like to thank again Jim Bradshaw from BAFTA, who uh, has been amazing in getting me in touch with people. But thanks to Morris for letting me into his home, for giving me his time, and for starting a little programme that you may have heard of called, called Doctor Who. Research at the Royal Marsden Hospital, which is www.royalmarsden, all one word, dot org forward slash donate. www.royalmarsden.org forward slash donate. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions Doctor Who, The Fourth Doctor Adventures, The Exilons. Ship's Log, Overseer Kalura reporting. Work on planet E9874, proceeding in line with all protocols and directives. Do not pretend to know where we are, Doctor. Just checking, Leela, just checking. Uh, registers on the star charts as E9874. That is a number, not a name. What's your situation? Not good. I think I'm the only one left. We've lost her signal. I want a rescue pod prepped and ready. Security squad to the launch bay immediately. Hello. Who are you? What What just happened? Warning, other life forms approaching. What kind of life form? Doctor, look out! Enemies are attacking. Up ahead. There it is. The beacon. Scanning. Yes, there is something strange about this beacon. I, I sense it. Define strange, mistress. I do not know. Something... You will move away from the beacon or I will have you shot. The Lakoyans have powerful weapons. If you attack them, many of your warriors would die. Move back! What are you waiting for? It's just one small machine and a sick girl. Open fire. Kill them both. Mankawa Rilaka! Big finish. We love stories.